0: You're listening to Mesearch, a podcast featuring Filipino perspectives.
1: In this show, we talk to trailblazers, business leaders, and bosses in the community to find out more about what they do.
0: Join us as we learn and get to the bottom of things.
1: Stay tuned. Hey, Dustin. Hey, Crystal. Hey, everyone. I mean, hey, everybody.
0: Uh, Everyone work?
1: Okay. (laughs) I was like, "Oh man, I just like messed up the continuity of our episodes." But yeah, it works. It's fine. Switch it up. Switch
0: it up. Switch it up. Switch it up. That
1: was my switch up. I used everyone instead of everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: surprise us once in a while. This is fine. Surprise. It's like it's a surprise every time you do it, but it's like an extra surprise when you like change it to
1: everyone.
0: Who knows? Next week, I won't even
1: say hello to anybody. <gasps> I'm just gonna show up, do the bare minimum. I'm like, I did the interview. Uh, Crystal, you're on your own for reflections. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That will be. I would have had to have such a bad day if I, like, made you do that. <laughs> you're so. I don't so, wanna do this. I don't wanna do it <laughs> 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 Oh, man. Can you, like, slap me across the face if I ever, like,. Do that, okay. <laughs> I don't want to be that person. I'm I really might just trying. shake
0: you because I I would feel bad to slap oh, yeah. you.
1: I just be okay, like thank you. Dustin. What the, oh. what the? What the? What the? What the? What the? <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, so we have a cool episode. We sure do. Uh, we're talking with Nurse Practitioner Anthony Velasco about health equity. So that's super important. Um, What does health equity mean to you, Crystal?
0: Health equity means that anyone and everyone, and I mean anyone and everyone, like literally anyone and everyone has access to healthcare. And when they go in for care, they're confident that they will get full and fair care. Period. Period. And Period. yeah, you shouldn't have to worry if your doctor is going to be um, an asshole to you because they're discriminating you in any kind of way. They they know what's up. They see you as a whole person. Um, and yeah, that that to me is health equity. What about yeah. you?
1: All of that. And not just the doctors, but everybody involved in the healthcare system.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Because Absolutely.
1: It's, it's not just the physician who is working with the patient to make sure that that individual receives the care that is necessary for their unique needs. It's the people checking them in. It's the people who are mm-hmm. at the front desk. Mm-hmm. It's the people answering the phones. It's the people doing the intake. Um social workers who might need to refer people to care, like specialists, nurses, um, literally everybody that works in a healthcare facility, because you need to be prepared to interact with people who do not look like you, who may need unique services that are specific to who they are and their background and what they're coming to the table with as far as like how they best receive information and whatnot. Mhm. So, we will be talking to Anthony Velasco about his perceptions of what the healthcare system is like today, some health equity gaps that he's perceived in his career and also the research and work he's doing to help advance this cause of let's make healthcare systems more equitable. So, are we ready for this episode? I sure am. I am, too. Let's get it.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. Welcome, everyone. Hi to Anthony Velasco, nurse Hello. practitioner Anthony Velasco. Oh today on Search, we have this soon to be PhD hey. uh, who is a nurse practitioner with a specialization in HIV care and we'll be chatting today about the steps we can take as a society to create a more inclusive and equitable healthcare system.
0: Yes, so. thank you for joining us, Anthony. Thank
2: you. Thank you Dustin and Crystal for inviting me. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, this is such a loaded topic and I hope the listeners will find some you know some resonance with what I have to say and my unique perspective as a clinician um, working with you know historically minoritized communities. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I so knowing that there's go ahead.
0: Oh no no go ahead. I'm good. I'm good.
1: <laughs> okay. Knowing that there's a lot of health disparity in the healthcare system just in the U.S., the work and research that you're doing, Anthony, is incredibly important. You're doing research on compassionate and equitable healthcare. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about you, your background, and what drove you to this sort of work?
2: Uh, yeah, um, so I'm a first-generation Filipino immigrant. Um, I grew up in Cavite, which is you know an hour south of Manila, um, and my family moved to California when I was 18. Um, I received my undergraduate and graduate degrees from San Diego State University in San Diego, California. Um, I started my career as a nurse um, And eventually as a clinical nurse at the University of California, San Diego, um, particularly in the infectious diseases unit. So my entire nursing career have always been working with people living with HIV um, and, um, you know, historically oppressed communities Um, after being involved in several quality improvement projects and evidence based projects. Um, I decided to pursue a master's degree in nursing um, to become a nurse practitioner and clinical nurse specialist. Um, And then after graduating my boards, um, that's when I decided to move to Palm Springs, California, where I currently practice as a nurse practitioner uh, at the federally qualified health center um what else i've been a nurse for over a decade and have been practicing as a nurse practitioner for the past five years um i'm trained in two advanced practice nursing roles which is nurse practitioner and clinical nurse specialist i'm also a credentialed hiv specialist as well as a certified high resolution anoscopist which is basically um, a way for us to look and detect on um, anal cancer among high-risk population groups in um, my role as a nurse practitioner um, I am involved in several clinical trials funded by the National Institutes of Health, um, as well as the AIDS Malignancy Consortium. Um, I also lead our gender wellness program, which provides specialized primary and gender-affirming care to transgender and gender diverse people. Um, so that's, that's me in a nutshell.
0: That's a big nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> you are doing work. <laughs>
2: I try, I try. I love what I do, and I love being involved in so many different yes. things. Yes, <laughs> we
0: love to hear it. I know, I don't. I'm an artist and an educator, so I don't know much about you know the the healthcare industry and and what you do. So I'm excited to talk to you um, about the kind of work that you do. Just just talking about like your your trajectory getting into nursing. And just just for context, how do you in your program do you get to choose specifically what you practice as a nurse? Um, how does that go? I'm just curious, and maybe others are curious about like uh, how it goes or what you do when you're studying nursing.
2: Yeah, so there's actually a lot a, a lot of different ways to become a nurse. So um, some people can become a nurse. Uh, through an associate degree or a bachelor's degree. Uh, But some people also do a master's entry program where they have a bachelor's degree in a different field and then decided to go into nursing. Um, all um, uh, All of those pathways allow you to take the board exam, which is called the NCLEX. And then after passing the board exam, you'll be able to practice as a nurse in different fields. So it can be anything from inpatient care to outpatient care, a variety of population groups from babies to older adults or, you know, um, any specializations as well.
0: Do nurses typically do the kind of, like, research that you do, like, when they are on the field and such? Because this this is new for me, hearing all of the things that you're doing. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I was never involved in research until I was a nurse practitioner. Uh-huh. And that's that's fairly common for a lot of nurses. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people are working in the clinical setting where they provide direct care to, to patients. But, you know, all are, what's, what's great about nursing is that there's so many avenues that you can take. Um, so for some people who, um, who have their RN license, who are not necessarily practicing as a nurse practitioner or a clinical nurse specialist or a nurse midwife or nurse anesthetist, um, they can be involved in research as research nurses. Um, so there's pathways that that, uh, in that regard as well.
0: Cool. Thanks for thanks for the context and thanks for the info. It's okay. very interesting because, you know, I have a, obviously a lot of friends and family who are nurses, um, but like we don't really talk about or they don't tell me about like what they're doing. Typically, it's just like, oh, I went to work and that was it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So it's really cool to hear such a nuanced experience from you so far. And we're going to hear more and I'm excited <laughs> to hear about it.
2: Yeah, and it's, you know, it's such a great reflect, you know, it is a reflection of how it is in in nursing, you know, like, in, it, it just reminds me of how my entire nursing career, my nursing education, I've never had a Filipino nurse that is a professor or Ooh, a yeah. PhD-level nurse uh, that's Filipino. Right. Even though in California, what, 20% of Filipino nursing workforce is Filipino, uh-huh. we are so underrepresented in academia and research and in leadership positions.
0: Why do you think that is?
2: That is such a loaded question. There's
0: a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's,
2: there's a lot of different factors to that, I think. Um a lot of Filipino nurses work in um, direct patient care, and I think that's one of the main reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, I'm not sure.
1: Hmm. Well, that makes it all all the more important that you are pursuing yes. your PhD. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to take that extra step in your academic career?
2: Um. Hmm. So um, in my role as a nurse practitioner, um, I, I mentioned about me starting the, uh, the gender wellness program um, in my clinic. Um, and there's such a big need for gender affirming care. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have patients who would drive two, three hours to seek care in this clinic um, because they could not find um, Clinicians who have experience or are competent uh, to provide gender affirming care. Um, I would have um, patients who are who are told that you know that they have mental illness because of their gender dysphoria because of being transgender, um, and I think that's just a, so so unacceptable um, and me studying stigma and looking at barriers to care among transgender and gender diverse people, particularly in access to care, I think will provide some insight in, um, in how we can make culturally informed programs and interventions that will allow transgender and gender diverse people to be involved um, in their care by engaging in primary care.
1: Wow. Wow. You're doing important stuff, buddy.
2: Yes, you are. <laughs> like um, you know, <laughs> you know I, I think it's just a matter of like having the structures, right, yeah. to create programs like yeah. that. Yeah. Like, I remember when we started a program. Um, within one year of formalizing our program, we were able to increase the number of um, trash and gender diverse um, people who identify as transgender, gender gender diverse Mm -hmm. by more than 400% Mm. within one year of starting the program. So people are there. It's just a matter of creating those programs and having equitable interventions and programs that uh, and and spaces where they're able to provide to receive care.
1: Wow. Props to you.
2: Yeah. Props to you and the work that you're
1: doing and your colleagues as well. Shout outs to your colleagues because.
0: Shout outs to your colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: Because as you were saying, as you alluded to, like, there's not enough spaces like this and we need more because it's important Mm -hmm. for the sake of health equity. That's
2: right.
0: So, especially in uh, the Filipino community, healthcare is seen as a noble and stable profession. And, you know, we, you can likely speak to this in greater depth, but, um, it's obvious that the system of healthcare has a long way to go, especially in serving the unique needs of diverse patients. So, it's, it's really cool to hear. All of this, because again, like it's I just I've never heard this kind of work done from like nurse folks, which is cool. Like you're all taking care of everyone. So we appreciate y'all. But it's really cool to see this like extra this like this different level that I've never really heard about. Um, But going back to, to, to the work that you're doing, can you tell us about some health equity gaps you've seen in your career that you you can educate us on?
2: Yeah, thank you for for that really good question. Um, uh, regarding health equity gaps that I've seen in my career, well, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that really um, influenced how I practice and how my career trajectory has been. Um, since I've worked with people living with HIV, let's talk about that first. Um, you know, LGBTQ plus people are disproportionately affected by HIV, particularly men who have sex with men and transgender people of color, particularly Um, in the US alone, you know, about 1.2 million people in the US are living with HIV and about 13% or about one of seven do not know about their HIV infection. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at HIV infection by ethnicity, um, Black and Latinx people make up about 60% of all people living with HIV. So there's the big disparity there as far as, you know, ethnicity living with, um, Uh, ethnicity of people living with HIV. Um, And then when you look at um, transmission category, about 66% of people living with HIV got infected through male-to-male sexual contact. And then if you look at like gender identity, for example, um, of all transgender people living living in the U.S., um, we estimate that about Four in 10, so 40%, um, are living with HIV. So again, that's such a big disparity of care there. Um, now, in regards to my research, particularly with transgender and gender diverse people, um, they also experience so much different um, uh, so much disparities in care, uh, in healthcare, particularly in access to care. Um, we, when, we, when we look at um, at populations, right? Um, Currently, we estimate that 1.4 million Americans identify as transgender and gender diverse in 2016. And this was actually double the amount of, um, of what we estimate that transgender and gender diverse people are in 2011. So looking at um, like surveys, the more current surveys, we see that there's a trend, uh, an increasing trend of people who are identify, identifying transgender and gender diverse. And, As the number of transgender people are expected to rise, you know, the number of TGD people affected by healthcare disparities um, is also likely to increase. And that really underlines the importance of creating um, uh, gender-affirming services for TGD people, for transgender gender-diverse people. Um, What else, you know? uh, uh, there was a really interesting study that came out in 2015 um, when they look at 27,000 transgender adults in the US. And what they found is that 33% or one of three transgender people have experienced some sort of discrimination or stigma-related experience when they are accessing care. So even for people who are trying to access care, they are, you know, um, experiencing stigma-related discrimination. So that includes, like, verbal harassment or physical violence or even being refused care. Um, So it's not really surprising why, you know, uh, more recent studies are indicating that um, uh, 30-something percent of Transgender people delay or avoid healthcare services because of this stigma-related experiences. It's a lot of like information. I mean, I can no. go on and yeah, yeah. yeah, I can I can go on and on about this is just in healthcare, but if you look at um, at other um, uh, uh, what do you call this? Um, other. Areas um, mm. there's a lot of like discrimination and stigma related experiences uh, as well. Um, I was just checking um, the number of legislations right now, just in July, just this month. There's 25 bills across 22 states um, that have been submitted to limit healthcare access among transgender people, mm. and some of those bills actually aim to criminalize clinicians such as myself by providing gender affirming care to trans people. And some of those legislations are actually, um, they wanted to redefine um, child abuse to um, include gender-affirming care. So what that means is that as a clinician, if I'm providing gender-affirming care um, to somebody who's uh, less than 18 years old, um, not necessarily administering hormone therapy, but just providing gender-affirming care, I could be, if this particular uh, bill get passed in that particular state, um, I could be liable uh, and be, you know, be um, uh, accused of child abuse and I could lose my license for providing gender-affirming care. So these are some of the macro-level things that we are experiencing right now just for this population group.
1: Okay, that pisses me off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. Clarifying question or maybe not a clarifying question. Let's Let's talk sure. about this a little bit. There's um so there's legis- legislation that's being proposed you were saying that will essentially criminalize the work that you're doing. I'm assuming and maybe you can speak to this a bit that the people who are lobbying for this are not actually healthcare professionals. That's correct. Okay, so that's yeah. that was an assumption <laughs> that is happens to be true. Can you mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about what the conversations are like with within healthcare professionals settings about these legislations? What are people in your field actually saying?
2: Well, everybody's upset for obvious reasons, uh-huh. um, and you know if if one of the things that we're trying to create here is like to improve access to care, right? Mm-hmm. If we're creating macro level barriers, such as legislation, structural barriers, systemic barriers, mm-hmm. then how can we engage transgender people in being engaged in care and therefore addressing all this health disparities they may have? Because we know, you know transgender people also have higher risk of suicide higher risk of depression and anxiety, higher risk of um, STIs, HIV, um, higher risk of cardiovascular diseases, respiratory diseases. So in almost all categories, transgender and gender diverse people are not doing really well. And I think one of the reasons why that's the case is that, you know, people are not engaged in primary care. So if we're creating more barriers for people to engage in primary care, then we would, you know, we would just expect that this barriers or this this disparities in care and and this health, health outcomes will just widen. The gap will just widen even more.
1: I'm still pissed. I'm still pissed. You got me heated,
2: Anthony. What is your
0: freaking problem, people? Like, what is the problem? Why? Like, why are you so, like... Full of hate that you won't allow people health care. Yeah. Why? Why? <sighs> I just can't. I honestly can't wrap my head around that kind of... <sighs> I just can't. I, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. It just... And
2: this- you know, and that's why I think I'm I'm so thankful that you invited me to be a guest in this podcast um, because not a lot of people know about all this other stuff that are going in background, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is you know such a great space for us to disseminate information and to get people engaged um, and be politically motivated in you know in in fighting all this discriminatory legislations that are coming out there. Uh, if we're not fully informed about what our politicians are doing, uh, you know, we need to be informed for us to be able to vote some people in and vote some people out. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Man. We're so yeah. lucky to have you on here to We're so about this. lucky to
0: have you. Y'all, you better listen to this entire episode, okay? Yeah. <laughs> this entire episode. Do not... Pause it, don't
1: skip a beat, yo, to, Don't skip
0: a beat. Don't skip a beat. Don't skip to the end. Don't skip to... Listen to the whole thing. Um, Question for you. So it's all about being informed. So I want to ask you in your nursing programs or in nursing programs in general what is the conversation, what is the education like when it comes to um, folks who are marginalized in, in the healthcare industry or who are seeking care. What is, what is that like right now?
2: Yeah. So, um, not very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, there's, uh, we have a long way to go. Um, it's getting better. It's definitely much better than when I started when I was doing my undergrad. Um, there's definitely more programs now who are, um, are very active in making sure that their curriculum are culturally informed, that they teach about cultural competence and cultural humility, um, about discussing about um, you know historically oppressed people such as LGBTQ plus uh, people. Um, you know there was a study that came out um, a couple of years ago looking at um, uh, medical schools in the U.S. and Canada, and uh, when they look at the number of hours of LGBTQ plus related content in the medical curriculum. It was just five hours in the entire medical curriculum. Five so,
0: hours a- yeah. and, 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 and how long are you studying for?
2: <laughs> right. So it's just five hours in the medical curriculum. It's even worse in nursing. So, you know, there was a study that came out too when they look at, Um, the nursing curriculum of uh, U.S. nursing programs, and they found a media or an average hour of 2.2 hours of LGBTQ plus related content in the nursing curriculum. You know, granted, this was, you know, a few years ago, um, and definitely there's more and more programs now um, who are uh, being mindful and being cognizant about adding this kind of like topics in their curriculum. Uh, But again, this is still... We're still behind. We're definitely still behind. Like in my program, in my undergraduate program, I really don't remember having an LGBTQ plus related like lecture. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only lecture that was even remotely associated with LGBTQ plus health was a lecture that I presented (laughs) on on PrEP, on pre-exposure prophylaxis, yeah. which is a medication that somebody would take to prevent mm-hmm. HIV um, if they were to be exposed to HIV. And that was me presenting the topic. <laughs> so, um, that so was you! That was me. So th- there's definitely, you know, um, there's definitely, uh, we have a long way to go, and and um, I'm really hopeful that more and more programs are incorporating LGBTQ plus topics and other, other topics as well um, in their curriculum.
1: So, so, I imagine that the counter argument would be, well, how many hours do you expect us to add to a health professional preparation program? Because it's already X amount of hours, months, or years. Um, How do you respond to such a counter argument?
2: Uh, What I would say to that would be incorporating, um, you know, incorporating LGBTQ plus topics in, anything or just not just LGBTQ plus topics, but, um, any topic that would improve our cultural humility, right? Yeah. Like, for example, when I was, um, uh, when I was doing a lecture, uh, for UPenn, um, uh, last semester, um, I was talking about HIV and, um, uh, we were talking about rates of HIV. We were talking about, um, you know, uh, transmission. And one of the, uh, one of the points that I, uh, you know, that I wanted to make is that, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity and ethnicity and race are not the risk factors for HIV or any health condition for that matter, right? Instead, it's about stigma, homophobia, transmissia, racism, along with poor access to um, social determinants of health, such as education access, healthcare access, safe housing, um, transportation, job opportunities, and income. All of those contribute to why LGBTQ plus people, especially transgender people of color, face many of these health disparities. And you can incorporate that in when you talk about cardiovascular diseases. Mm. you can incorporate that when you're talking about you know, asthma or COPD. You know, if you are living in an area that um, has poor air, pollu- poor air quality, has a lot of air pollution, you can talk about how people who, are, who have lower socioeconomic status are more likely to develop asthma and COPD. So you, can ha- you, know, you don't have to have a full lecture about LGBTQ plus topics. It's about incorporating all those things in any of the topics that you're presenting in class. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it it just goes to show how everything is related. Like, your profession is related to another profession, is related to another profession, is related. To- so, I feel like, you know, a lot of people think that their particular area professional area does not intertwine with the rest of the world in some ways but we're all connected y'all like the way that we we interact with our government the way that we interact with everything it all affects it including our healthcare industry And how we receive care, and it's just, I don't know how many times I need to tell folks this, and I feel like if anyone's listening, like, y'all, we got a nurse practitioner here telling us that (laughs) everything matters, right? Um, And everyone, you know, all these factors factor into these health issues, so... Everything is everything, yeah. <laughs>
2: that's I mean. Every, everything is connected, and that's yeah. the reason why you know. For my dissertation, I wanted to to use an ecological model, looking at the individual, you know, micro level interactions, meso level interactions, and macro level interactions, because all of them are interconnected. Yeah, and you know, um, they are. All of these things affect how we live our lives.
0: Yes.
1: Welcome back, back, everybody. We're here with nurse practitioner Anthony Velasco, and totally awesome person who's teaching us a little thing or two about health equity, um, specifically LGBTQ plus and transgender health care. So having talked about all of what we've talked about in your research, in your work, in your profession, and in, in legislation and whatnot, what do you feel are a few actions or tips that you would like our audience to take in order to advance this cause of supporting health equity?
2: Um, a lot, but let me start with two. Sure. Um, you know, um, it's critical for us uh, that we address health disparities at the individual micro, meso, and macro levels. So this includes um, interventions and programs that address structural or biomedical and behavioral factors. Right, so this means you know creating interventions and programs that are culturally informed by people who will be receiving those interventions. Mm. Um, it's important for us to create interventions that are you know vetted by the people who who will receive those interventions and not by what we think other people need. Mm. And I think that's you know one of the one of the um, pitfalls that typically happens is that you know, the powers that we create interventions that are not culturally informed and that are not informed, but deliver experiences of people who who those interventions are for. And that's when those programs and interventions fail. Mm. Um, My my next point would be, you know, um, it's not the responsibility of historically oppressed people to educate the community on how to treat them better. You know, we need to be actively involved in developing cultural humility, you know, seeking to educate ourselves and not rely on other people to teach us. You know, it's, it's about acknowledging the privilege we hold and realizing the power we bring in, in this dynamic. Um, whether we realize it or not, we have the power to make our society more equitable for everybody. Um, it actually reminds me of uh, when one of my, uh, one of the students um, that I had the pleasure of, uh, of, of um, collaborating with last semester, you know, she told me that we have to be respectfully disruptive of the power structures that create inequity and systems of injustices. And you know, it's it's such a powerful, um, you know, statement. We have to be disruptive of the power structures that create inequity and systems of injustice. I yes, love the sound please. of that.
1: I love the sound of that. <laughs> it's my favorite song, Anthony.
0: Yes, yes, me too. Play that back. Ooh, play that back again. Ooh, play that back again. Oh my God.
1: <sighs> yes. We've talked about um, these these individual actions that uh, folks at the micro level can, can take um, to support the cause of health equity. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like the industry should do like are there any mm. are, is there anything that the industry that, or the healthcare system should be doing in this moment that might be like low hanging fruit and so obvious that we should just be doing
2: yeah i mean systemic policies right mm-hmm. like if you look at um institutional policies and institutional structures um it can be anything as simple as <laughs> You know, sharing their pronouns, making sure that it's a policy for your staff to share their pronouns when they introduce themselves, making sure that the forms that you have are gender inclusive, um, making sure that you have um, uh, bathrooms that um, anybody, uh, regardless of, je- of their gender identity, can access. It's about um, creating safe spaces in your lobby or in your clinic, in your uh, I don't know in the hospital setting um, where people can be safe uh, to receive care. So um, there's those kind of factors that institutional institutions can do. Um, looking at um, a bigger macro level stuff, um, you know, legislations that. Um, that allow funding for research like mine. Yes, Uh, fund that research. (laughs) 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 Uh, Fund me, please. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so, um, you know, having funding for uh, research uh, like mine and and a lot of my colleagues do similar research looking at um, health equity and, and uh, improving access to care. Um, those are some of the bigger things that we can um, look at um, to improve um, how we provide care to um, transgender and gender diverse individuals. I, I mentioned about, you know, improving the, the curriculum, the nursing curriculum and the medical mm-hmm. curriculum. So that's, that's another thing that people can do, um, you know, also, um talking to your politicians about you know if you live in a state that uh that limits access to care to transgender gender diverse people whether it be through um, insurance related barriers or you know legislations that prohibits care um you know having those discussions and 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 keeping those politicians accountable um for the actions that they do i think it's very important
1: yes well said Everybody can do something. Uh, so, Anthony, where can people go to learn more about you and the work that uh, that you're doing to advance health equity?
2: Um, so, I'm very active on Twitter. So, you can follow me um, at Anthony the NP. So that's A N T H O N Y. Um, I post a lot about my research, about nursing, about HIV care, social justice and health equity. Um, I also share about um, any publications and, and research I'm working on. Excellent. Cool. Follow the ant, y'all. Follow the, at. Follow the ant.
1: Follow yeah. the ant. Follow the ant.
2: Yeah. And you know, stay tuned. I'm currently collaborating with several nurse scientists on the book. Yes. About you know wellness in the workplace, which is a primer for for leaders in healthcare. Um, I will be um, writing particular uh, specifically about um, structural and environmental issues to promote to promote a gender diverse workforce. So. Hopefully 2022 this is going to be my work uh for this year for the rest of the year I'll be writing that <laughs> I'll be writing a lot. Yes, good luck. Good luck. Good luck. luck.
1: Yeah. We'll keep an eye out for the book. Um and then maybe yeah. we can have you on for part 2 to <gasps> continue the conversation when that's published.
0: Yes, please. Of course. Yes. I know that we learned a lot from you today, y'all. This was Anthony Velasco. Anthony Velasco.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay, y'all. That was nurse practitioner Anthony Velasco. And I want to call out before we uh, say anything else. We know. We know that this is our first person that we've had to speak on any sort of healthcare professions, because especially in season one, we wanted to focus on uh, diverse career paths and educational paths that may not traditionally be what uh, one might expect from a Filipino or Filipino in America. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the norm or the expectation is medical field um, as a career path. Um, But having said that, I think it's so important that we do have people go into the medical profession, if that is your calling. Because as we learned in this episode, it's so important to have uh, people who look like us delivering care because that contributes to um, health equity in that, Mm -hmm. you know, people who look like you will know what your needs are or will be more compassionate to what your needs are. People who understand yeah. you will be more um, receptive of your unique needs. So that's one way yeah. to improve health equity.
0: What's... You know, it's go ahead. Ooh, you know, I it, this conversation has also made me want to have more conversations with my nurse friends and family in a in a deeper way. Um, I I hope that. I can have more conversations that go really deep um, like our conversation with Anthony, because I, again, I've never had a conversation like this with someone who is practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder if any of my um, friends or family who are in the medical field are open to that because I, I've never seen an opening for it. Really? Mm-hmm. Um uh, knowing that so many more folks, of course, are in the medical field within the Filipino community, um, knowing that there's there's so many of us who are in that, I, I haven't had enough conversations with them on this level. And I, I just hope that there is space for that yeah. um, and op- more opportunities for that.
1: Yeah. And this was a really, it was a really great conversation. And I think for... Transparency on my end, I think my perspective on healthcare as a profession has been very financial based um, as far as being a stable career and having a high return um, salary wise. So I think that has been a very surface level, and it's great that we have had an opportunity today to speak to someone that can. Give us a picture of what it looks like when you're actually dealing with people. Like, what is the interaction that you have with the people? What is the contribution that you are making to society? As opposed to like, okay, I'm setting myself up for financial success. And I think that was, that's the basis of many of my initial conversations. When I was initially choosing my career as a young person, it was like... Healthcare, medical field, that's the way to go because you'll be set for life financially. It's very like much using a different lens. And I have such a great respect, even more so after today, knowing that um, there are people, there are Filipinos in the field doing work that helps the lives of marginalized Mm. populations.
0: Yeah, I think that is very specific and... Um I honestly would like to see more of that. And I think um something that he said is that there there hasn't been really any Filipinos who are teaching within mm-hmm. these programs. And yeah, um why is that? Like I would love to 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 see more Leaders come up in in this field who are Filipino because there's a lot of us there. And yeah. Um, yeah, if if you have if you are in the medical field and you have any perspective on this, we'd love to hear from you as well. Yeah. And if you are itching to maybe be a leader, go do it because. We yeah. need them. We need them. We
1: need them. So, Crystal. Any um, major takeaways from this conversation that you will uh, remember well beyond today?
0: There are many, many things that I can take away from this conversation because it was just so enlightening and um, so eye-opening. But what sticks out at this moment is what he said about how we need to have interventions that are created and vetted by the people these programs are created for and you know i think it's interesting how people have a say about people that they know nothing about <laughs> you know yeah. it's kind of no it's not kind of it's arrogant and disrespectful just like straight up <laughs> like yeah. I just don't even know how you can speak on that and why you think you have the authority to do so when you have no fucking clue. Anyway, um... (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah, just because you're in a place of power doesn't mean that you're all-knowing. Sorry about it. Yeah, that's true.
1: That's so true. I'm not sorry
0: about it. I'm not sorry about it. And it's important that we do the work also. So, like, um... He also said something about, like, we can't rely on, we also can't always just rely on folks who are within these communities to get, you know, that information. Like, you have to do the work also, right? Mm-hmm. So, these things need to work in tandem with one another. Like, if you are in the healthcare industry and you're not identifying, if you can't identify with the person coming in, you need to do the work to try to understand them because in the healthcare industry, I believe <laughs> that you're supposed to be caring for people. And if you're caring for people, you have to care for all people who come in. And if there's certain people that you are you don't know about and you're caring for them, how do you expect to care for them when you don't know anything about them?
1: Right. And I think it's also like on the same, token, by the same token, on the same token, mm-hmm. like you, you cannot assume to know things about people.
0: Yeah. You cannot assume
1: that they are like you. So yeah. you have to come in to any space, whether that's health education, health care, or any other space, mm-hmm. not assuming that you know 100% about that individual's life or lifestyle, identity, identity or background health background yeah like be open ask questions and also like do the work like crystal said you know yeah. try to be mindful it's all about like cultural humility
0: yeah i love i've never heard of that this this phrase cultural humility but i think that yes that encapsulates it all but you know it's it's i will say it is concerning because i do know some people in the healthcare industry who are unfortunately very bigoted and homophobic. Mm. And it scares the shit out of me that there are people who are supposed to be taking care of others, Mm -hmm. but don't really care about others. It's terrifying. And I'm going to call that out because that is a real thing. And that is a real thing in our community because we have a lot of homophobia that is within our community. Still, there is still a lot of anti-blackness in our community. There is a lot of prejudice in our community. And there are a lot of nurses in our community as well. So, Mm -hmm. you know. Y'all need to wake up. Like all of us in any industry, we all need to wake up. But especially any industry where you are taking care of someone, you need to be aware of your prejudices and how you are taking care of people. And if you're not caring about others in a, if you're not really caring about others In a real meaningful way, then like, I don't know, it just scares me. You know, it scares, it scares me that I have family members and friends who are going to the doctor and I feel like they may not be taken care of properly. That scares the shit out of me. It really does. So if you are in the healthcare industry, especially if you're Filipino, you know, because there's a lot of us like, please do the work. Yeah. I fear for my family and friends when they go to the doctor or when they go get seen by specialists, anybody, you know? Mhm.
1: And I know like going back to your thing about prejudices, like everybody has them. Everybody yeah. has them. Yes. Um and but as like a healthcare professional, that's something that you need to put aside because you need to care for that life first and foremost. Mhm. And if you don't think that you have prejudices, you have something else. It's called unconscious bias. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Break it down, boo. Break it down. It's Break unconscious it bias. down. <laughs> yes. And I yeah. know that I do, but I'm always trying to check myself. You know, like we all do. Like Dustin said, we all do. Like none of us are innocent
2: <laughs> of yeah. this
0: because that's how society has been and we have all grown to know all of these awful things that we need to unlearn and mm-hmm. you know we're not knocking on you we're just saying like if you if you are a believer in kindness like truly then you got to check yourself and there's nothing wrong with checking yourself and there's nothing wrong with checking others. Yeah. Um, Be, as he said, as Anthony said, be respectfully, be respectfully disruptive. That means being respectfully disruptive in, you know, the space that is within arm's length and also in your professional settings. And if you're in the healthcare industry and you see that there is a huge disparity in how people are taken care of and, you have the power to to change that. You do, but you have to speak up. And yeah. you can't also pretend like it's not happening because there's also a lot of that.
1: Yeah. That speaks to kind of like the individual interactions that Anthony was talking about or like the individual actions people can take. Um, yes, people have the capacity to do their own research, to vote for who. For, to vote for legislation and for leaders who will be able to have their finger on the pulse of what needs to happen and what's going on in terms of healthcare equity. But mm-hmm. there's also a responsibility that institutions have to make sure that diverse populations are receiving adequate healthcare and have access to adequate healthcare. Mm-hmm. And that means changing some policies. Like Anthony made, made the, um, example of ask for people's pronouns. Like that's such an easy thing to do, but it is a demonstration of how open that healthcare setting is to gender diversity. S- just a simple thing as asking for your pronouns.
0: Yes, I I put my pronouns in my email signature. And you know what's really interesting is that Some of my students have asked me like, Oh, what is it? Why do you put your? Why do we need to know that you're she, her, hers? (laughs) You know, like why is it? It's a good
1: conversation starter. Yeah. It's a great
0: conversation starter. And we've had really wonderful conversations about, about, you know, how people identify in ways that some of my students had no idea Mm -hmm. about. And now they know. And like, it's really cool to see. Like, even one of my students was like, Oh, um, and she's, she's like a, uh, she's a senior citizen. And, uh, she asked me about this. And she's like, I just want to understand because I don't want to, I don't want to like disrespect anybody. I'm like, Well, I appreciate you asking because that's yeah. important. And, um, she actually, had the opportunity to share pronouns with someone and that person was very um was very grateful that that was out in the open f- in this conversation because especially the older generation you know like they're not really going to ask about yeah, pronouns like new, but whoever she for them. yeah yeah, however she whoever she was speaking to was really like saying thank you for trying to understand yeah. you know like
1: that's awesome I'll also add, yeah, it's the little yeah, absolutely. things. Absolutely. I'll also add that it's not just asking for people's pronouns, it's offering up your pronouns. Like putting on the table, yes. like, this is who I am, sets a great foundation for this is a safe space for you to now share who you are.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, just, yeah, even putting it on my emails, like, yeah. it offered a space. To talk about something that is important. And it was a safe space. And yeah, and not just for like people who are trying to understand it, but like for folks to know that like when you come into my classroom, I will love you and accept you.
1: Yeah. There's a lot that comes. There's a lot of um, underlying things that can be gleaned from you just offering your pronouns.
0: Yeah, Yeah, truly.
1: So... That's low-hanging fruit that institutions can ins- that institutions can implement in terms of training their employees, making it a po- a policy to have that be part of the intake conversations. Uh-huh. Um, so many things can be done at the institution level, and there are things that um, people in power can do to make healthcare settings a bit more inclusive. But yeah. As far as things that you can do as a listener, definitely educate yourself. Be kind and like know that you have prejudices and know that uh, you don't know everything. Humility. Humility.
0: Humility. Humility.
1: Humility. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: What about you, Vu? What's your takeaway?
1: Um, my takeaway is that healthcare professions, or my takeaway is that healthcare preparation programs have uh, a long way to go as far as mm. um, preparing the next generation of healthcare providers and healthcare professionals. Anthony said that it was something like two to five hours of content related to LGBTQ and trans. Um, trans folks and gender diverse folks within the scope of a program. And depending on the type <laughs> of health program, that could be a couple years to like seven years. That's yeah. a long time, a two two hours. How is that real? I don't know. I think it has to do with the value that people in power in those institutions place on minor- minoritized populations Mm -hmm. because if you don't feel like it's an important topic you're not going to put it in the curriculum so i think one thing that we can do is support people like anthony in their mission Mm -hmm. to do more research in the area of lgbtq plus and trans health and gender diverse health so that more people can know what is going on and what is important and how the healthcare system impacts those marginalized communities so that, you know, people who are designing these curriculums understand how important it is and that they can more intentionally integrate those topics throughout the program, not just in like a two hour sit down, because you're not gonna get what you need in two hours. These are conversations that need to be happening at every turn. Yeah. And they can be easily at integrated. Every turn. Easily integrated any in any topic of conversation.
0: You know, you know what it feels like. It feels like that two-hour moment of, of of that education right there is like, oh, we're gonna have a movie day, and it's just like a two-hour movie. That's what it feels like. Like you know, when you go to go to class, and it's like, oh, we're gonna have movie day to learn about. The like, I don't know, the female reproductive system or something, yeah. And they just throw in a movie and it takes up the entire class time, yeah. That's what it feels like it would be,
1: (laughs) yeah. The way that the analogy that comes to mind in that might apply in this scenario is like driving, you might watch like a two hour video on like the dangers of speeding, but you don't know really how to drive safely unless you have more experiences actually practicing driving. Yes. So perhaps in healthcare preparation programs, integrate more opportunities to practice. Yes. Integrate more opportunities to have conversations about the differences in cultures and identities. And the fact that you will encounter people who have differing experiences and cultural expectations of how healthcare relationships should go. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I feel like that can do wonders. But who am yeah. I? Who am I?
0: <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's
1: You know what? No, I'm I'll just, take that back. I have a doctorate. I have a dissertation yes, in, in cultural Own competence it. in healthcare. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about.
0: You know what you're talking about, boo. You do. Uh, okay. But Anthony knows I, more
1: because he's actually practicing the work. Yeah,
0: and you know, I hope this agitates someone out there who is in the health healthcare industry again like I honestly have so much respect for Anthony because I've never seen this level of practice mm-hmm. in medicine within our community I know there's a lot of us in in this field but to see the level of um,
1: the depth of interest in, in diverse populations y-
0: yeah and just like the investigation of his practice, mm. you know, is just very wonderful to see.
1: We are so thankful for Anthony's yeah. time. Uh, this definitely opened my eyes. Um, and I hope that everybody who listened to this episode takes something from it.
0: Yeah. All of our episodes, I hope. You yeah, take I hope you, you take from something from every
1: episode because we try hard at putting these informative episodes together. So, yeah,
0: we really do. Okay. Yeah. All right,
1: everyone. That was the episode. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Thank y'all. Appreciate it. Thanks. Be well.
1: Thanks for listening. MeSearch is produced and hosted by Dustin Domingo and Crystal Tugatti.
0: Editing by Dustin Domingo. If you enjoy MeSearch, make sure to share, subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Also, make sure to check us out at MeSearchPodcast.com and follow us at MeSearchPodcast.
0: We're going to get to the bottom of things. This
1: is MeSearch, folks. Woo!